podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Today on the 1012 Podcast, Sam Kahn Jr. of The Athletic joins the show to talk about spring football in the state of Texas. We're talking Baylor, TCU, Texas Tech, Houston, and Texas, of course. Then Iowa State softball head coach Jamie Pinkerton joins the show to talk about the weird new relationship between West Virginia fans and Iowa State softball, their huge upset over Oklahoma State on Sunday, and what's going wrong in Ames this season. Welcome to the 10-12, the podcast that covers all 10 teams in the Big 12 Conference, plus BYU, Cincinnati, Houston, and UCF. We are the flagship show of the 10-12 Network and partners with SportsDrink, your water cooler for all things sports and not sports, a fantastic podcast network in their own right. I am your host, Philip Slavin. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode. It is a bit of a long one, but I've got two fantastic guests, Sam Kahn Jr. with a lot of college football, Big 12, and the state of Texas talk. And Iowa State softball head coach Jamie Pinkerton's got a lot to say about a lot of things. Two great guests. I let them go. You're going to enjoy both of these fantastic interviews. Before we get to those, we've got a few things to discuss. First, congratulations to Oklahoma on winning their second straight women's gymnastics national championship. Look, can we just talk about the fact for just a second? Just a second. I know Oklahoma's leaving. We're supposed to not care. We're like the Sooners anymore. But this athletic department is so damn well run. And like, I get Texas. I'm going to kind of miss Oklahoma. No, I'm not going to miss them dominating the conference in college football. But I am going to miss what they bring to the conference holistically as an athletic department. And yes, Texas has things that they do. Swimming and diving, absolutely fantastic. Tennis, uh, rowing, awesome. I just, OU softball, we'll talk about in a minute. Women's gymnastics. They're good in golf. I just... I'm going to miss Oklahoma a little bit. I am. I I am. It's kind of cool having an athletic department that wins national championships in the other sports as part of your conference. Not to say that other programs in the Big 12 don't win national championships in other sports. They just don't do it as often. That's the reality, folks. I, I, I went back and looked. Of the new Big 12, the 12 teams that will be in the conference, Last football national championship, BYU in 1984. Men's basketball, we're good. Women's basketball, 2019, Baylor, we're good. Baseball, Oklahoma State in 1959. Softball, never. Wrestling, Oklahoma State, 2006. Men's golf, Oklahoma State, 2018. Women's golf, TCU, 1983. Men's outdoor tennis, Baylor in 2004. Yes, there's indoor tennis. It's just a little bit different. It's not an NCAA. Women's tennis, never. Men's cross country, BYU in 2019, women's cross country, BYU in 2020. Thank goodness for BYU coming in. Women's gymnastics, never. Men's gymnastics, Iowa State in 1974. No women's soccer, no swimming and diving. We're losing a lot. We just are. A lot of things that are nice to be able to hang your hat on, aside from just football. Luckily, men's basketball, I think we're going to be okay. I think we're going to be okay. Speaking of Oklahoma, a lot of Oklahoma talk we're about to have in regards to softball. Big 12 student-athletes made up 28% of the USA Softball Collegiate Player of the Year Top 25 finalists, which was released this week. Jordy Ball, Jada Coleman, Tiara Jennings, Nicole May, Alex Storacco. That's five OU players among the top 25 finalists. Joining them from Oklahoma State, Rachel Becker and Kelly Maxwell. 
No Texas players on that this year. No Baylor players on that this year. A little bit surprised by that, especially at Baylor with the way that Orme has been playing. But seven of the top 25 finalists from the Big 12, five from Oklahoma, two from Oklahoma State. Sounds similar to what we saw uh, from the women's professional fast pitch draft this past week. Uh, Five Big 12 players taken. It's the second year for the league, who added two teams in Texas and Oklahoma City this year. Uh, five players taken, as I mentioned. Number one overall pick, Alex Staraco. Now, this is just seniors. Um, they can't actually sign anything with their teams yet until they've finished their collegiate careers. But Alex Staraco with the number one pick to Oklahoma City. Haley Lee and Grace Lyons from Oklahoma were also drafted. Rachel Becker and Kylie Naomi from Oklahoma State drafted as well. So congrats to all of them. If you are a softball fan, pro softball, there are a number of former Big 12 players that compete in the Women's Professional Fast Pitch League. I'd go and check it out. That includes Maddie Williams, Iowa State fans. She's there. And you're tired of OU softball talk. They have now outscored teams 342 to 35 this season. 342 to 35. Numbers through week 10, 39-1, 9-0 in the Big 12, 16-1 versus top 25 teams, 21 wins by run rule, 342 runs scored, 35 runs allowed, as we mentioned, 76 home runs, 23 shutouts, 10 errors, 319 strikeouts through 241 innings, and a 31-game win streak. Thanks to Seth Oliveras for providing us with all of those neat and terrifying facts and why I continue to say Oklahoma is about to three-peat. They are a freaking monster. Meanwhile, Oklahoma State is in an offensive slump, losing two straight to Iowa State on Sunday. We'll talk about that with Coach Pinkerton. And to Wichita State on Tuesday, their second loss to Wichita State in a midweek game this season. Less than ideal with a road trip to Austin this weekend. A fantastic weekend of Big 12 softball coming up. Why? Because it doesn't feel like it's just a like, eh. Like last week was exciting. OSU was in a series with Iowa State. Iowa State led in all three games, Oklahoma State winning the series 2-1. to one. Texas Tech beat Baylor in game one of that series. We had a ton of offense, very exciting series there. Baylor wins the series 2-1. to one. Kansas knocks off Texas in game one. Texas, Kansas coming down to the wire in game three to decide that series. Texas gets it. It was a really exciting past weekend in the Big 12. This weekend, I think, is only going to be better. Oklahoma State and Texas in Austin. It's a series that OSU has dominated as of late. Really interested to see if OSU can get their offensive slump turned around in Austin or not. OU is facing Baylor, the only team to beat them so far for a three-game series. What's not to like about that? And Kansas and Texas Tech. Look, Texas Tech-Baylor was exciting. I think Kansas and Texas Tech will be as exciting Two. These are two teams fighting to be the fifth Big 12 rep in the postseason based off RPI. Now, neither one is on the right side of 50. Neither one is in the bracket as an at-large team at this point. Kansas is number 61 in adjusted RPI. Texas Tech is number 69. Nice. Adjusted RPI. I just want to talk about that for just a second. I've been talking with our buddy Eric Lopez uh, from In the Circle podcast. He was on our show, just color commentary for uh, UCF. Very knowledgeable about college softball. So what he has explained to me, adjusted RPI is a little bit different than just straight RPI. And it is something that the 10-person selection committee looks at when it comes to picking the field for the postseason. Adjusted RPI gives bonuses to teams that play top 75 RPI teams in the non-conference. It's kind of broken down similar to the quad system in the way these bonuses are awarded. 
1 through 25 on level 1, 26 through 50 on a little bit lower level, and then 51 through 75 on basically like a third level. So there's like third tier, three tiers of bonus points when you play top 75 teams in the RPI. So again, non-conference scheduling matters. You got to win, win those games. You got to beat those teams, but putting them on the schedule matters. You can't, and again, non-conference, you can't just go and rely on your conference slate to do all the heavy lifting for you. It's why you look at Baylor. They did a decent job so far. They've got some quad one non-conference games. They got some wins there. They got some quad two that matter. Oklahoma State's done a great job. Oklahoma's done a good job. Texas has done a, a decent job. This is what's come back to bite Texas Tech. We talked about this. They don't have a they don't have they have one quad one win. They beat Baylor. That's their first one. They don't have a non-conference quad one game. They played six quad two games, two quad three, most of their schedule in quad four. They've got losses in quad four. It's absolutely killing them. I hate that for Texas Tech. I think this team is really good. Kansas, much better scheduling. They had quad one non-conference games. They didn't they weren't able to get one. They got four quad twos in the non-conference, Ole Miss, Nebraska, Liberty, and Cal State Fullerton. So it's why they're higher. They've still got a lot of work to do. I, I am hoping one of these teams is able to do enough to get above 50 in the RPI. For Kansas, the issue is going to be the record. For Texas Tech, the issue is just going to be that non-conference schedule. I, I stand by the Big 12 will get four teams into the postseason. I think all four potentially could host. They do. I think that's a real possibility. Baylor's got more work to do that OU, OSU, or Texas. Uh, Baylor at last check with around 19 in the RPI, if I recall. Baylor is 18th in adjusted RPI, a little bit lower in regular RPI, but 18th in adjusted RPI. Texas at 11, Oklahoma State still at 3, Oklahoma at 1. So, got to feel pretty good there. If Baylor can get on the right side of 16, they could potentially host. So, a huge weekend, a lot of fun. One story I can't wait to talk about, Iowa State, West Virginia fans kind of adopting each other. Iowa State uh, has adopted WVU baseball because Iowa State doesn't have a baseball team. West Virginia fans have adopted Iowa State softball because West Virginia doesn't have a softball team. We're going to talk about kind of how that came about with Coach Pinkerton here in just a bit. I think it's fantastic. I love it. I've seen a lot of it on Twitter from West Virginia fans. They are just all over themselves. I would love Iowa State to have had a better season. That would have that would have helped us, but this this thing came about organically, and it's awesome. Can't wait for you to hear about that. Just like I can't wait for you to buy your first shirt from Homefield Apparel. They put out new collections for Baylor, Texas Tech, and TCU, and they were fantastic. The tortilla toss T-shirt for Texas Tech was incredible. The cursive Baylor hoodie is fantastic. Everything they put out for TCU is great. Like there's a cursive frog baseball tee. Oh. Oh, everyone got a quarter zip. Everyone got joggers. I don't know how many times we've said on this podcast, like the joggers are some of the most most comfortable things you could ever put on your body. So go to homefieldapparel.com. Use the promo code NETWORK12 and get 15% off your first purchase. NETWORK12, that is the promo code. Go check out the more than 100 schools they have available, including every current and future Big 12 team. Love the stuff they have at Homefield. Love that they are a sponsor here on the show and part of the network. That network, of course, is 1012 Network. You can find every show in the network at 1012network.com. T-E-N, the number 12, the word network. Don't forget the 1012 podcast is on YouTube. We are posting a lot of these interviews, the full videos of them on there. If that's how you prefer to get your podcast, if you prefer you want to watch it or just listen on YouTube, go check it out there. Let your friends know. Do us a favor. 
leave us five stars and a review on here on the podcast. It really does help the show out tremendously. If you're a YouTube fan, you want to go listen on YouTube, subscribe, like the video, subscribe to the channel. It really does help us out. I appreciate all of you. I love all of you. You're incredible. I appreciate everything you guys do, all the interactions on social. Hit us up anytime on Twitter. Hit us up anytime on Instagram. All right, that's enough. It's enough selling. I don't enjoy doing it, but it's important, so I'm gonna. We've got two great interviews. I can't wait for you to hear them. Let's talk football in the state of Texas. Let's talk Big 12 and Iowa State softball. Let's get to it. Brand new for the 2022 season, it's the RVK. We're coming at you two ways on two days. It's Monday and Thursday. Jeremy, J.N. Fiend Phoenix, and me, Brandon Phoenix, a.k.a. I also hate Pitt. We are the Raspy Voice Kids. We are the Raspy Voice Kids podcast. You get pop culture Monday at 7 a.m. You get the West Virginia University podcast Thursdays at 7 a.m. Either way, no matter what we say, you're going to have fun. So, like we like to tell you, get at your boys. Spring football is wrapping up for some and wrapped for others, so it seems like a good time to kind of touch base with as many of the Big 12 teams as we can. And since there are five this season in the beautiful Big 12, as we will be uh, referring to this uh, upcoming year as, what better person to bring on to break those five teams down and get some very important questions answered than the Texpert himself, that is Sam Kahn Jr. of The Athletic, making his return to the 10-12 podcast. Sam, welcome back, sir. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm good. Like I am, I am uh, neck deep in softball. So <laughs> trying to also keep tabs on on slightly on baseball. I'll be, I'll be honest. I I picked one stickball sport and kind of had to ignore the other. And uh, also keeping tabs on football in a like I th- this isn't a shot at spring. I don't want to have the spring game competition. I don't really care. Um, like spring football, I, I feel like. It used to be more of a definitive thing, like you went into spring ball kind of knowing what your roster was, and so you're really paying attention to see like who, what names are we going to know heading into fall, but now with so much, with the transfer portal and the late window, and so you've got more guys leaving and more guys coming in, I'm not saying spring ball doesn't matter. I feel like it doesn't, it's hard to say it has the same impact as it used to because your rosters still aren't even set yet. Yeah, it's it's not it's not a full preview for what you're going to see in the fall. It's a decent preview, but yeah, there's still more activity to to happen. And and we're right now sitting a little bit early in this portal window. There's still about another 11 days left in the portal window. So there's a whole host of spring games this weekend. So lots of time for, uh, for more guys to jump in the portal and rosters to change. So really I think it's that, and, and you don't get to see practices then, but it's really June, like that first week of June when guys are enrolling in summer classes. That's when you pretty much feel like the rosters are set. And so there's a little bit of move. I almost kind of compare it to NFL preseason where you have all these guys on the roster and then they make roster moves in between and and you have then you have OTAs and minicamp and things like that. So it's just it's just a different dynamic. So you're right. It, you, who you see play and star in spring football in April may not be necessarily who's still on the team in August and September. I, the the uh, NFL preseason, that's good comp. I like that. Uh, that's good. Uh, so we've got a lot of questions to ask. Uh, we've got five teams in the state of Texas, because you, know, you can never have too many teams uh, from the state of Texas in your conference at one time. 
I will have five this year for our, our one-off. Uh, shout out to Sickos uh, on, uh, on Twitter, the Sickos community, uh, for uh, for providing us with the beautiful Big 12 as a perfect encapsulation of this absolutely insane season we're about to undergo. I want to start, we're going to go over the each Texas school. I want to start with Texas Tech. Um, I don't think there's a program outside of the one we'll touch on last. It's kind of getting the most buzz heading into this season than Texas Tech. And look, every year we're looking for a, a dark horse team. Um, last year it was Kansas State, and they delivered with the Big 12 championship. Um, we talk all the time on the show about can we see the trend of a new team making their first appearance in the Big 12 title game since it came back every year. We've had a new one every year. Last year was Kansas State. It's very exciting. And we're starting to dwindle down on the teams available. The West Virginia, Texas Tech, and Kansas, and the four incoming could all make their first appearance this year and keep that trend going. I don't have a team that I love as much as I did Kansas State last year, but if there is a team I'm going to pick an earmark as potentially could do it, it feels like Texas Tech despite having, I think, a decent number of questions that they have to answer for this program. And I think that's why I don't feel as good about them. I want to start specifically, we've got a quarterback competition here. Um, I know it feels like it should be Tyler Shuck's job to lose, um, but we saw enough from Baron Morton last year, I think, to say this is a real competition Yes, we may be leaning a certain way from those on the outside looking in, but I'm curious from your perspective, how much of this is a competition and how much of this is uh, Shuck's job to lose? I think it very much is a competition, but I I would still count Shuck as the favorite. And and if I'm sitting here in April predicting who I think will take the first snap in September, I think it's going to be Shuck. And I think the main reason is the experience. You're talking about a guy who's got a lot of talent, who has won the job out of training camp each of the last two seasons at Texas Tech. Of course, he started at Oregon before he transferred transferred over to Texas Tech. But he hasn't lost his job because of ability. <laughs> he, he's been knocked out of the lineup because of injury, and, and he's had some really tough injury luck the last two seasons. And I know Zach Kitley loves how his attitude and his approach and, and just the way he, he leads that team. But Baron Morton, I wouldn't count out just because his pure talent. And you mentioned – we saw some flashes of it. You know, he started that game against Oklahoma State last year, and I was really impressed for for a first time start. You could really see he's got some juice. You know, he's got the ability. What you see, why he's the highest ranked quarterback signee that Texas Tech has ever had in, in the modern recruiting era. So, I think Barron's going to play regardless of what happens. Even even if Shuck is the starter and takes most of the snaps, I think they're going to try to find Barron a way to get in the games. Uh, and also just because Texas Tech has seen firsthand, it's hard to go from game one to game 12 with one starter. They've had to play multiple starting quarterbacks in the last two seasons. So I, they're gonna, it, it behooves them to have Morton ready to go. And, and when you when I talked to Kitley last year, he, he very much believes in Morton as the future of this program, the future quarterback to lead this offense. The, the the ceiling on Morton is really, really high. Uh, so so they're in a really good spot with both of them. But if, yeah, if I'm predicting who it's going to be in September right now, I, I'd guess Tyler Shuck. Injuries are sometimes luck, right? It's just, it's bad luck. But Texas Tech seems to have have just a, a consistent issue of quarterback injuries. Like, is that something they've been able to identify and address? Or is this just, I mean, it just is what it is. And hopefully this, this whatever curse that has fallen upon this quarterback room will finally be lifted and, and moved off. 
No, I think it, I think it's just some bad luck. And honestly, when you see the landscape around the country, or certainly at least in my region around the state of Texas, like I said, it's hard. It's hard to survive a season. The, these games are physical. The defensive players are faster and, and bigger than they ever have been. And I think of a place like Texas had Quinn Ewers and lost him for a few games last year. TCU, of course, lost their starter three quarters into the season. And then Max Duggan, we know what happened there the rest of the way. Um, Shuck's injuries, of course, have been, you know, that collarbone shoulder area. I think I think that's just bad luck on on how that's happened. And, and it's really frustrating if you're him. So, uh, yeah, I don't think it's anything that they've identified as a trend. I think it's just at that position when you've got young young men who are fast and physical and coming off that edge and, and deliver a hit. Uh, it, it can leave an impact and, and make make a lasting impact for you for beyond just uh, just that one moment. Tech needs to recreate the Ted Lasso scene and everybody check something of importance into the fire <laughs> and see if they can uh, can correct this problem. Uh, keeping their quarterback healthy is obviously going to be a big thing for Texas Tech, and that job is going to fall upon five completely new starting offensive linemen for Texas Tech this year. What is what have you heard about the situation at that position group? I think they feel good about it for, for a couple of reasons. One, you're changing positions, but at least you have uh, some guys who have played and you have some guys with some experience. So, you know, you're moving, moving guys around, you're switching the tackles, you're moving center to guard. And, and there's been a lot of buzz about the incoming guys from Western Kentucky transfers who played with Zach Kitley in the offense, uh, Rusty Stotts and, and Cole Spencer. Those, those guys, I think, they're going to be able to plug in in the interior line and and really make an impact because they they know that offense they know what's expected of them and moving the pieces around the the, the hope is and I'll visit them later this week uh, the hope is for Texas Tech is to get that chemistry between that group and and kind of get them all settled into those roles so that by the time you get to to fall camp that that those things are becoming second nature and that chemistry is built in and you have a really solid unit that you can rely upon. But, but the good thing for them is they do have some experience to rely upon both on the transfer market and guys that are just moving around positions and just getting adapted to new positions. Uh, speaking of replacing guys, and this is, this has been my thing with tech of why I'm having a hard time making them like a, a really good dark horse is because they have to replace so much of importance from last year. Again, your entire starting five on the offensive line. And then on defense, obviously using uh, losing Tyree Wilson, who is expected to go in the first round of the draft next week. Uh, we lose Krishan Merriweather. Like, how is this defense coming together so far to you? Do you see this as a, a side of the ball that can take a step forward for them this year? I do. I do. Being the second year uh, of their scheme under Tim DeRuiter, I think is going to help. I mean, it's hard to replace Tyree Wilson. There's there's no bones about it. The guy's going to be a top 10 pick. And, and, and those guys don't, they don't just, you don't just get them in every recruiting class. They do like uh, Joseph Adetere, the the Fort Worth area prospect that Zarnell Fitch recruited. Uh, he was a true freshman last year, got some, got some run. And, and toward the end of the season when Tyree was out, was able to kind of step into that role. And I think they're really excited about him and and they've got I think they like the experience on the back end that they've got and then you've got a couple of veterans on the front uh on defensive front Jalen Hutchins Tony Bradford are back I think those two guys a lot of experience a lot of playmaking ability uh so so the edge part I think is going to be the one that I'm kind of most concerned about just to see 
how quickly does a data rate grow and can, can he be a force right away at the, the talent level coming out of high school? You certainly, they certainly saw the upside and knowing tech, the way they identify guys and, and the ceilings they look, I mean, they, they're looking for guys with really high ceilings that have the measurables and the ability, even if the tape may not be great. Uh, so, so you're looking at a, a data rate as a, as a high ceiling guy that they think has some long-term potential. The question is, is, how much of that impact can be this year and how good can it be this year? But I'm with you. You talk about when you talk about them being a, a kind of a dark horse team, I look at the big 12 and if there's a team that could kind of come out of nowhere and and be the team that pops up in the big 12 championship that you didn't expect. I kind of am leaning toward this one too, just because I like just what they bring back from a production standpoint across the board and, and a mostly stable coaching staff. I think they only really lost one full-time coach uh, this offseason at Jones to Oklahoma. So uh, I, I really like the situation Texas Tech is in right now. I, I said when uh, when McGuire got hired, like if if this is gonna work, year three kind of feels like the breakthrough year. Like I feel like we're if if we were next year's roster because I do like what they're doing in recruiting, and I, you just got your first class. Your next class should be even better because of the momentum that they built there at Texas Tech. It still feels like a year away from being the breakthrough season. So I mean, as a dark horse, like what do we? F- what do you think would be kind of success for Texas Tech this year at this point? I think I think if you go if you if you finish with eight, if you finish eight and four, nine and three, if you finish nine and three this year, I think you gotta feel really, really good if you're Texas Tech. And and if you're in the mix at the end of the year for the Big 12 title game, meaning like the second to last week of the season or last week of the season, you're playing for birth in that game, that's a huge success to me for Texas tech. And it's a step forward uh, because remember, this is a team that just won back-to-back bowl games for the first time in nine years. I think it was 2013, 2014, I think was the last time they played in back-to-back bowl games. So uh, th- this, this is a program that hasn't had a lot of success post Mike Leach and to to be able to sustain and string together successful seasons, even if it's not, Hey, we jump from eight and five to 10 and 10 and two, like, that would be great if that happened for Texas Tech. I, I don't know that I'd expect that they have, they have certainly have a tough schedule, but but if you just stay, if you make improvements and and stay at least flat or make a slight increase in that win total, I think you got to feel good about the direction program. And like you said, it sets up for a really good year three when you talk about that recruiting class they brought in. That will be the year you start to think, okay, some of these high ceiling guys that we felt like we're going to develop by year three. They should be coming in and starting to make some real impacts. And and because Joey McGuire's hope is to turn this roster to look like what Baylor's roster looked like in 2021, it, it, the, the roster that ended up winning a Big 12 championship and sent six guys off to the NFL draft. That's what they're trying to do in, in the, with their recruiting strategy and their development. And so it's going to take some time to get there. But because of how wide open the Big 12 is, you just you never know. I think I think you could see them make some waves this year, possibly uh, if things fall their way. Glad you mentioned Baylor. That makes for a perfect transition to to Waco to talk about the Bears. Uh, you mentioned the Big Twelve title. We've we've kind of seen extreme highs and extreme lows from from Dave Aranda at Baylor so far. Two wins in year one, a Big Twelve title in year two, and then six and seven in year three. Uh, it, it kind of makes you question like what they are obviously building something in, at in Waco, but they have yet to kind of have back-to-back seasons where you felt like things were stable. 
Um, you turned over a ton of the roster after 2021. You changed offensive coordinator and offensive line coach after year one. You uh, you changed out defensive coordinators after year three. Like it, it's really felt like they haven't had back-to-back seasons of just kind of like things feel settled here. And it still doesn't feel like, obviously, heading into year four uh, for Dave Aranda, like things are settled. Uh, let's start with Matt Powledge, the new uh, defensive coordinator, who obviously had been at Baylor as a safeties coach before becoming uh, the Cody C up there in Oregon. How has his move back to Baylor kind of been for the program so far? It's good. Obviously, there's some familiarity there because of his time there on that staff with Aranda the first time around and being part of that Big 12 championship team. So that familiarity is a plus because that means there's familiarity with personnel that's that's still there from that team. Not not a ton, but, but a decent amount. And there's familiarity with working with Dave Aranda. Uh, I was talking to Dave about this recently, and, and they're right now in the mode of spring football of, hey, let's make sure we're getting on the same page with everything, you know, going weekly check-ins on, you know, where progress is happening and 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 if we're doing the things that we want to do and making sure that they're kind of seeing things the same way. And then as we get into the fall, then Dave's going to probably back off a little bit and let, let it be Matt Palage's show. So... Right now, it's it's them getting on the same page and making sure that that chemistry is there between him because obviously Aranda is a great defensive mind in, in his own, and, and he's got a lot of great ideas. That's that's where he made his bone as, as a coach, and uh, but but so far I think the transition has been good. And I and I was out there at practice recently watching them, and and I see a group that's playing really fast. Uh, you've got you've got a lot of speed on this defense, and and I think they're, they're intrigued with what they can do. They, they're going to need some guys to step up. You know, I think of somebody like Gabe Hall. You're going to want him to take another step. Uh, you're going to want, uh, you know, Matt Jones is back. You want to see him progress a little bit. Uh, you know, you, you got that secondary took some lumps last year. You want to see them grow a little bit. And certainly that's an area where where Powell will be able to bring some expertise because that's kind of his his expertise there. So uh, I, I think that right now it's it's a smooth transition. It's just getting to the place where they're comfortable. And, and, and I think by the time we get to August and training camp, uh, I think Baylor will be there. And the fact that he's been there before, I think, is a really big plus for them. There's a lot of quarterback competitions in the Big 12, and you wouldn't think that there would be one at, at Baylor with, with Blake Shapin coming back in, obviously, after you let uh, the 2021 starter transfer. Um, but f- from what you tell me, there might actually be a real quarterback competition between returning starter Shapin and Mississippi State transfer Sawyer Robertson there in Waco. 100%. Yeah, watching those guys recently, uh, I sat in on practice and just watched and Blake Shapin, obviously, we know his arm talent, and, and he's super competitive. But Sawyer Robertson is a really talented passer. I watched him throw a ball. It, w- it was kind of on a crossing route. Uh, receiver was kind of going away toward the boundary, and, and Sawyer was was on the far hash. And defend- the defender was right there step for step, and Sawyer just put it right on target where the defender could not get it, and only the receiver could. And I was really impressed. It was he's got some real arm talent that I think is exciting for that room and is really going to make this a real competition. I would not be shocked at all if Sawyer Robertson ended up being the starter. That said, I don't think Blake Shapin's letting this go down without a fight. He's super competitive and the energy that you've seen from Blake in this spring and and the leadership, I think he's developing as a leader and taking a step forward. So I, I think it's really hard to predict. I think you could see Blake start for game one, and then maybe he has a little bit of a short leash if, if things struggle, if, if, if he hits some some rough patches. But if Sawyer continues to play the way he does, maybe it could go that way. I think it really is truly a coin flip. And I watching them compete in practice, I think 
The, both of them seem to move the offense pretty well, and they're both talented passers with a lot to offer. So I, I, I don't, I, I really do think this is a competition. This is not a lip service by any stretch. And, and Dave Aranda seems to think this is going to definitely drag into into training camp. Man, that is that is very interesting. Not not a, I mean, look, quarterback competitions are fun, but it's definitely not one that I thought we'd be keeping so close an eye on. Uh, at this point, it feels. We know what the ceiling for Dave Aranda and Baylor is because we we saw it in year two. But like I don't like over-investing into coaches because of a year one performance. We'll talk about DC in a minute. Year two, you think, okay, this is a good idea of what this program can be. And then you saw what happened year three. I, like what – how do we kind of gauge Baylor at this point? Because I, it, it feels like we've really seen a Jekyll and Hyde kind of situation – from Dave Aranda's program so far. And again, ever-changing at coordinators and offensive line coaches and quarterbacks. It just, it just feels like a program from a guy who just seems so calming and the kind of person you could li- listen to wax poetic about college football and defense for three straight hours and, and feel great. But it's strange to feel like this has become a kind of a program of unrest underneath him after just three years. Like, What should realistic expectations for Baylor be post-spring heading into the fall? I think improvement. I think just get back on the right side of 500. I think if they go eight and four, uh, maybe nine and three, I think that's that's a good step. Getting back toward, like I was talking about with Texas Tech, get yourself back into conference championship contention. Let's not forget, they went into the second week in November last year, six and three, and if they would have won out, they would have been in the Big 12 championship game. This was not a bad team. But this was a team that hit a really bad stretch at the wrong time, right at the end of the season, losing four straight, uh, three in the regular season in that bowl game. So I think the talent is still there. The way I look at this program under Randa, it's tough because I would like to flush the first year because of the circumstances, because of the pandemic and not really being able to be hands-on with the team until training camp as a first-year head coach who admittedly himself had had a lot to learn as a head coach because he really had been used to kind of fading in the background and and being the defense coordinator and being on the whiteboard all the time and not having to manage all this other big picture stuff. And Dave is still very much learning how to be a head coach. And I, it's kind of strange to say that in year four, but Dave, Dave is one of the ones that I appreciate because he's willing to be transparent and introspective about that. You know, when we were talking recently, he said, you know, he goes, you go to the bookstore and you look for books on leadership and they tell you what to do, what not to do. He goes, you can save your money. You can look at our last two seasons because that's what to do and what not to do. And so uh, I, the fact that he even can, can have a sense of humor about that, I think is a credit to understanding where we did things right and where and where we struggled. I, I think he, he would admit last year they probably should have gone to the transfer portal a little bit more than they did. This year, obviously, they did because they, they ended up getting, I think, 10 guys into this to inject some talent into this roster at some spots that they really needed it. But last year, like they had Keytron Jackson this year at receiver. That's a room that really probably could have used, as Dave would say, last year's Keytron Jackson. They could have really used that guy at that position. There, there's some other spots, certainly maybe in the secondary or, or elsewhere where they were young, that they could have used some help. But that's all about Dave's evolution as a head coach. So when you say, how do you view Baylor? To me, this is the year to make a real assessment of where we're going because now you're pretty much gone from Matt Rule recruits, which a lot of those guys ended up, those six draft picks, were, were guys mostly recruited by Rule that helped you win that big 12 championship. 
This is Dave's team now, made in Dave's vision and, and constructed by him and that staff. So now what do you see out of that product? And can the way Dave wants to manage a college football program succeed big picture long-term in college football in 2023? I, I think it can, but I think this year is going to be kind of a referendum on that. And, and to that point, the same thing goes with the staff. He fires a defensive coordinator, Ron Roberts, who was his mentor. Not an easy decision to do. But Dave is also very highly protective of his culture in that building at, at Baylor. And he's not really willing to – if there's one thing I've learned, he's not willing to sacrifice on that. He he. There's there's some things I think that they're they're willing to have some wiggle room, but, but culture and chemistry in that building is paramount. And character and all that stuff is paramount. And so – those are where those decisions are made. Now it's it, it's tough to go through and have all these coordinated changes and have all this turnover, but th this is going to be, I think, the test that we see now is okay. You've had three years to kind of make it what you wanted. You're four. Let's see what you got. The team I think has the most question marks in Texas. I mean, not surprising as Houston is joining the Big Twelve and be a new member this year and is going to have to go through a, a full Power Five schedule, not just playing a few teams, but. Throw all the fact that they're joining the Big 12 out the window, and you still have to replace Tank Dell and Clayton Toon and a ton of this roster. Like, I don't think there's a roster going through more upheaval outside of maybe Oklahoma State, definitely not in Texas in the Big 12. I have a hard time putting down specific questions for Houston because it feels like they have so many questions. Let's just start with the easiest one. Another quarterback competition, Texas Tech transfer, Donovan Smith. Uh, we've got uh, Lucas, whose last name has completely escaped me. Holy. As I say. <laughs> Thank you. Um, like, it, from an outside perspective, like you brought in Donovan Smith, I would think Donovan Smith, knowing his potential, and, and I am one of the Donovan Smith fans when he was at Texas Tech. Like It feels like this should be his job. Where does that competition stand to you right now? Yeah, I would definitely give Donovan Smith the, the edge coming out of camp because he's just got experience. He started eight Big 12 games. You, you know, he's going up against a guy in Lucas Coley who hasn't started at all at the college level. He's played, obviously got some reps last year at Houston. Uh, and, but he's super competitive, and I think that's one thing Dana loves about him. D Dana Holgerson told me, he said, we brought in Donovan Smith and Lucas Coley's like, I don't care, I'm going to win the job anyway. And, and Dana loves that attitude about him, and, and that's why one of the reasons why they got him. They needed to bring in somebody because they did not want to go into the Big 12 without any quarterbacks on scholarship that didn't have experience, like real experience, because they just they're just coming off having Clayton Toon, who's been quarterback there since the 1980s. Uh, apologies, Clayton. <laughs> but but the, the, having that luxury, you, you wanted to be able to come in and not have to start fresh with somebody who's just going to be seeing this all for the first time. Uh, in the Big 12. So so Donovan gives you a guy who's won some tough games. Dana had a up-close and personal seat to one of those in overtime last year in Lubbock. So uh, th that that's going to be a plus for them. He's a big body, as you said, you're a fan of him. Strong arm, really can run it, can do everything you really want to do, Has really checks all the boxes on the quarterback. I think the thing you want to see is can he take care of the ball better this year as they adapt in that offense. And they've got some tools around him, I think, uh, the receiver room, I think, is going to be good even without Tank Dell. I think you, Matthew Golden's going to. I think you're going to see, you're going to see a big jump from him. They brought in Stephon Johnson from Oklahoma State. Uh, they've got some other guys, Joseph Manjack, who who should be coming back from injury, who, who's I think an impact player last year. Who you'll see him step up some more too. Uh, a lot name of, team right there. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And uh, <laughs> Mikhail Harrison Pilot, the four-star recruit that they beat out TCU in Texas, among others, 
uh, for him. He'll come in in the summer, and I would be shocked if he didn't compete for a spot uh, for playing time early in that offense. He's a superb talent uh, out of Central Texas. So uh, they're really stacked to receiver. And then Alton McCaskill, the the running back, who they missed him last year in a big way. And, and I really did think his injury and him being out last year really hurt that offense and and having him back because he is I think a legitimate he was he's a legitimate power five talent uh coming out of high school and and was a great freshman player for them you know 16 touchdowns as a freshman so uh, offensively I think they're pretty good I I would be a little bit concerned about the line I think they feel good about the starting five but they need some more depth there but overall going back to quarterback I think Donovan Smith has some tools to work with on that Houston offense uh, as we talked before we started recording, this is not, you know, we talked about it's hard to gauge teams because rosters aren't set. This still feels like a roster that is definitely not set and a team that is not done going portaling uh, now that spring football is is about pretty much wrapped up. Yeah, no, no doubt. Uh, Dana Holgerson said, that I think right after spring football ended, they, they probably need 11 more bodies to fill up from a scholarship standpoint. And so, uh, they're going to go be aggressive in the portal. And and when we had the conversation, me and he and I sat down in, in March, he said the top 25% of our roster or top two, top third of our roster is big 12 ready. It's the rest of it. The other two thirds of the roster that needs to get there. And part of that is high school recruiting, which you've seen the last two classes have been pretty good. So they're developing it from that standpoint. But it's that in between, and I think that's where you're going to fill the gaps is with bringing in experienced guys in the portal. And I thought they did a really good job in the winter window. Uh, they got a Dari Halsey, the sage from New Mexico, who was a freshman All-American. They got Ish Harris, the four-star linebacker who was part of that number one Texas A&M class. Isaiah Hamilton from TSU, who was an All-American, uh, All-SWAC player in 2022. David Weibu from Oklahoma, who was a starter, started 12 games there, second on the team in tackles at OU. Edge rusher, who's going to be, I think, really effective for them. Uh, in in uh, in the fall this year so adding a few more guys even if they're not starters at least if they're rotational guys guys that can give you some quality depth that's going to be the key for them in this uh, in the spring portal window Houston's been building for this minute they hired Dana Holgerson I think long-term planning that they would become a power five team and he would be the guy to help get them there it, it, I don't feel like last year was the year you want to have as you're heading into Big 12 play. It felt like they had been building towards something big, and then last year it was frankly disappointing. I mean, do you feel like this program is where it needs to be entering the Big 12, or is last year an indication that it's it's got more it's got more to go than than maybe they had hoped when this opportunity came up? Yeah, I, I do think I do think they still have a little bit of ways to go because I would have expected them to be a 10-win team last year. I, I, I certainly thought they would be one of the favorites to contend for a New Year's Six spot uh, out of the group of five. And the fact that they you know, got hammered by Kansas, and no offense to Kansas because Kansas was really good, obviously, especially when Daniels was healthy, but, uh, but you got hammered at home there. Uh, they had to fight to beat UTSA, another good team. But but if you're if you're that level of team, if you're going to be going to the Big Twelve, you can't have to fight to win that game. Uh, you had to fight to beat Rice. Uh, they 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 lost to Tulane at home. Obviously, Tulane season ended up going really well. That they they lost to Tulsa at the end of the year. They they just had a lot of ups and downs that I think you just would have liked to seen a little bit more resolve from this team. You would have liked to have seen some better poise down the stretch in late game situations. The defense kind of fell off a cliff last year, you know, after a really outstanding 2021. 
So, so that was an area that took a step back. And so, yeah, I do think there's question marks about this team going in. That said, I, when I look at the starting 22 of what I think it will be, that's good enough, in my opinion, to compete in the Big 12. But it's that next group. When you look at Baylor and Texas Tech and TCU and what they've been recruiting, the level they've been recruiting at for the last few years, Houston hasn't recruited that part of the roster at that level, and that's why they're having to go Portland the way they do. But but that's also built into Daniel Holgerson's philosophy. Daniel's philosophy is just find power five players, period. And so that's going to be a challenge. But I do think you're right. They've been building for this. This has been something they've looked forward to ever since they were left out of the the original Big 12 back in 1996. Uh, they're finally here. The facility plans are going forward and all that stuff. They've got a great indoor. All this stuff is lining up. It's just getting the team there. And I will say, I do think this build, when Dana Holgerson took the job, obviously they didn't know they were going to go in the Big 12 right when he got the job. That was the hope. But I do think this build has maybe been a little bit more work and a little bit more challenging than everybody realized it was. And, and it's not wasn't going to be just as easy as come in, win the American every year, get a New Year's Six Bowl, and then ride off to the Big 12. He, they learned, really, I think, in this last couple of years, that's a lot harder than that. And, and especially in this era of college football, with, with the way player movement has gone, it, it, it's going to be tough. And so it's going to be incumbent upon Houston to keep building up and we, another thing like that is NIL. They're going to have to get better on that front because they're really not on par with some of their power five peers that they're about to join. Uh, that's another aspect of it. But but there's there's still some steps to take. But I still do think as a program, they are moving in the right direction generally. Speaking of year ones, obviously TCU. <laughs> I mean, year one, you, you know, you didn't win the Big 12. But that's okay. You beat Michigan in a playoff game. Make it to the national championship game. I don't care what happened in the national championship game. You were there. People can say whatever they want. Like, obviously, that's not the ending you want to have. But they got there. And to anybody who wants to debate, like, I would rather not get there than have my team there and that happened to them. <laughs> bull shit. Bull. Yeah. That is, that yeah. is an outfaced, yeah. bull-faced lie. You, whatever you need to do to sleep at night, that's bull. Anywho, um... I mean, I don't think you could ask for a better year one for Sonny Dykes with where the program was that he took over. And, and the argument was, like, there's talent on that roster. They should be achieving more. And we, we saw what they were able to do last year. How <laughs> – this is going to sound weird. But I think I've heard coaches kind of hint at it, is that sometimes you almost don't want year one to be awesome because it sets a level of expectation – that might be hard, that's going to be hard to maintain. And for a program like TCU to have the year that they had, I don't feel like the, the expectation within the fan base is like, okay, cool, you did it, now you should be doing this every year. But it's going to be really hard for TCU fans <clears throat> if you have a similar to Aranda day, year two to year three situation. I don't think TCU is going to fall off that much. But like, how do you, how is TCU kind of handling internally the expectations they have now put upon themselves based off of a absolutely incredible year one. Yeah, it's tough. Uh, it, it's a challenge. It, it's a, it's a delicate balance to strike. You, you mentioned being too good in year one and setting unrealistic expectations. I think of Texas A&M in the Johnny Manziel era and Kevin Sumlin in 2012, they went 11 and two and that was the best season they had. And obviously they were never bad by any stretch uh, in any of those seasons. They never had, they were certainly not as bad as they were last year in Jimbo Fisher, but, but Kevin, someone ended up getting run after six years because they never were able to get back to that. 
Uh, I asked Sonny Dykes about, about the idea of setting the bar so high and then the expectations of having to meet it. And Sonny's message was, Hey, for us, we just need to focus on getting better. That's it. Now, what that ends up being in wins and losses, it's hard to say every year based on the circumstances, based on, you know, what kind of luck you have with injuries. Certainly they, they caught some pretty good luck last year in that regard mm-hmm. with a lot of their key players uh, being able to sustain for most of the year. Uh, but, but ultimately is, is, are we moving forward as a program and are we getting better? And they do. He, he, I think Sonny's next challenge or the way he views it is, can we build this team to play 14, 15 games? Because when they got to the end, you mentioned that national championship game. And I asked him, were you guys spent? And he's like, I don't think there's any question we were spent, you know, after winning the Fiesta bowl and going as long as they went without, without an off week. And then, you know, they obviously they had three weeks to build up for Michigan and then you turn around and play Georgia. And I just think the tank was empty for them. And so now it's not only getting better from a talent standpoint and raising the bar in terms of expectations, but it's also building this team in terms of depth to be able to make those runs more often, because if you're able to sustain and and survive the, the, the tough rigors of a season, then you're able to contend and be in that conversation more, especially if we enter the 12 team playoff era where you may not have to win the conference to get in. And you may be able to sneak in an at large bid if you're a top 10, top 12 team. So that's going to be, I think the goal for them, but yeah, it's hard to rectify because I don't think anybody, when you look at the production, they lost is going to expect them to make any kind of run like that. I don't know that even if I sit here today, if I would pick them to be in the big 12 championship game, I think it's hard to say because of, because of how much production they lost, but it's going to be a fascinating thing to watch because that is a fan base that is used to success after 20 years of the Gary Patterson era, which most of it was successful to now going, you got all the way to the pinnacle and now what happens next. And I think that's what makes year two for Sonny Dykes and this program. So fascinating. Now, I'm having a hard time with TCU because look, it's not just the amount they lost the number of one score games. And, and this has been a trend in the big 12. If you want to make the big 12 title game, the, the teams that have the best, one score game records are the teams who get there. That's just the state of the Big 12. That's the games are so close. You were playing around Robin's schedule. Obviously, it's going to change drastically this year because you've got four brand new teams that you're not used to playing on a regular basis. But it, it is hard to look at TCU and say, yeah, they're just going to be able to, to be right there. We we aren't OU's the only team we've seen like get there year in, year out. Otherwise, we see turn it was OSU Baylor, and then mm-hmm. we had Kansas State TCU. <clears throat> and expectations for this year are going to be I don't. I don't think you're. You're kind of having a hard time figuring out who it is. So I am. I am curious what what TCU is able to do for an encore in year two. They'll have to do it without Garrett Riley, who is off to Clemson, and in comes offensive coordinator Kendall Bryles. A um, let's call it a controversial hire uh, for many, based off of the last name. And I mean, of all schools to go to, TCU being an interesting one to have a Bryles on the roster. I do the players care. Like I, 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 they obviously these players weren't around for the Art Briles era at Baylor and and the feud between TCU and, and Baylor and and so on and so forth. But I'm like, how much, how much do you feel like the players actually care about the stuff that those outside of the program do care about in relation to Kendall Briles? Yeah, I, when I was over there, I didn't get any sense that it's an issue uh, for the players or for honestly even the staff, most of the staff. Um, the 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 returns are just talking to people there. Everybody has been very positive about 
just how he, Kendall has been in the building and what he's been like to deal with uh, on a daily basis. Uh, certainly, I talked to Chandler Morris. He he loves playing for him and and working with him in this offense. And I think Chandler's really excited about what the potential could be there. So, um, I mean, certainly those issues are real. And and I even asked Sonny, you know, you knew there was going to be some backlash, and so so why did you make this hire? And, and Sonny's answer was that, uh, you know, he's done a lot of looking into and and reading reading the reports, reading. Uh, all the different accounts of, of what happened at Baylor. And then obviously talking to the place coaches at the places that Kendall has worked ever since he's been gone from Baylor. And he said, he's, you know, everything has come back really good and the feedback has been positive. And so that's why he felt comfortable. And also I, Sonny has a longstanding relationship with art because they were on the same staff at Texas tech once upon a time. So he's known Kendall for a long time. And I think the fact that they know each other and that Sonny knows Kendall was a reason why he felt comfortable bringing him on because he, he, I think he's drawn on his knowledge and his personal experience with Kendall. Now, whether or not that's the right way to do it or not, obviously is up, is up to everybody else. Uh, but, and I certainly wasn't a fan of the hire when I saw it. Uh, but I also, also see the other side of it and I also see Sonny's perspective on it based on his longstanding relationship with him. But I didn't get the sense that anybody in the building, uh, at least not when I visited, uh, was upset or was had any concerns about it uh, so far. As we mentioned, they had a lot of turnover on this roster. It's For TCU, what do you feel like are the biggest questions post-spring heading into the summer and into the fall that they're still going to have to address? I mean, production is a big one because, and I say that offensive production particularly, because Duggan, Miller, Johnston, Barber, D Davis. I mean, you go down the list. I mean, there's a lot of heart and soul guys they lost on that roster. And, and then obviously multiple offensive linemen. I think, you know, they bring back two of those starters uh, and then one that was a, the started part of the year. So there's a lot of transition on offense that they're going to have to go. And Oh, by the way, learning a new system in that whole process. And so that's a question mark for me. Um, I do think knowing uh, how Kendall's offense, I, I saw when he was at Houston, and him and De'Aaron King uh, did really, really well that one year in 2018. I think De'Aaron ended up with 50 touchdowns uh, combined rushing and passing. I could foresee a big year for Chandler Morris if, if things break right for them uh, with that offense, if they be able to get it on the same page. But, you know, there's going to be some some new receivers. You know, we thought Jordan Hudson would be one of them, but he just hit the portal recently, so he'll be gone. Uh, Savion Williams is probably one of those guys. Obviously, they brought in JoJo Earl. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of new faces. Uh, John Paul Richardson, who they brought in from Oklahoma State, I think that guy really could could be a factor. Uh, Trey Sanders at running back is a big, big guy. It's going to be interesting to see how he does. Uh, and then defensively, certainly there are some questions because you lose your Dylan Hortons and your D Winters, but they do bring back a decent amount of starters on that side of the ball. And in you're in year two of a system where they, I thought they did a lot better in year one uh, of a new scheme under Joe Gillespie than I thought they would be that they thought they were way better than I thought they would be. And now in year two, I think you can, the guys who are back, you're going to see some probably playing a little bit faster, probably having a bit, a little bit better grasp. And I think Gillespie's pretty excited about what they can do uh, this year on that side of the ball. But um, then the other question for me is leadership is where's the leadership coming from? Uh, because, because you lost so much uh, of those heart and soul guys, like, I mentioned Trey Hodges, Tomlinson, Duggan, Winters, uh, Horton. I mean, Miller, so many of these guys, Johnston. 
those were all veteran guys who'd been through it. And not to say there aren't veteran guys are, there still are guys there that, that are veterans, but that's a lot to lose. So, so not only from a production standpoint, but from a leadership standpoint in, in the, amongst the players, where's that coming from? Who are those guys they're going to lean on? And I'm curious to see how that develops. I'm, I'm really interested in TCU. I, I do think it did because of what happened year one, it makes year two so much more interesting for them because Used to, we're saying, okay, well, it was a tough year one, and so what kind of steps forward can they make? Instead, it's well, it was an incredible year one, uh, one of the best seasons in school history. How do we how do we build off of that and try and, and create something that we believe is is maintainable? Speaking of uh, of expectations, look, I, I get the jokes. Uh, ESPN's mm. FPI rankings came out, and <laughs> there in the top ten was the program that everyone loves to rank in the preseason and can't seem to stay there by season's end. That would, of course, be the University of Texas. Texas is back is one of the most long-standing jokes in college football, and has been ever since they uh, last were in the national championship game. But even I will admit, this year feels different. Um, it does feel like a different year. And look, to everyone's saying we do this every year. They always have talent. What does that matter? Very interesting article from the uh, site you work for, The Athletic. Uh, shout out to the staff there, Ari Wasserman, David Uppen, Mitch Light, who put this together and kind of looked at the teams who do the best job uh, of developing NFL talent, both at the five-star, four-star, and three-star level. And there is no program, uh, let's see, in the last 11 years, who has done less from a taking talent and converting them into NFL players when it comes to five stars in Texas, 17 five stars signed, only four drafted to 23.5% rate. That is the lowest of the teams listed there. Like The big problem with Texas has not been that they can't get talent. Obviously, we know Texas is get talent. Uh, same thing with four stars, 146, only 17 drafted, 11.6%. Not the worst. That honor, from a percentage standpoint, goes to Nebraska. But from a number the point here is texas for the longest time we talk about their their recruiting and part of it was who they were getting on the roster it wasn't five stars at, at offensive line and defensive line on the lines where it mattered it was a lot of skill talent um and then we had guys like tom herman i've ran it on this show before like i think he did his players a disservice because he got guys in there who were awesome as freshmen but never got any better than they were as freshmen because they just couldn't develop the players well. And so the problem for Texas is not that they haven't had talent. It's been where has the talent been and a lack of ability to develop the talent they have on the roster. It does feel like this year there is a lot of anticipation and expectation for Texas that is less, it's coming from people who, not the the fans and those in the media who just like to talk about Texas because it's you got to say Texas for the SEO and for the the numbers to generate. Actually, <laughs> yes. look and, and and know the Big Twelve yourself and, and our friend Shahan, who go no, this is a year that expectations for Texas. And we had this debate with Shahan on Twitter is like it's t- it's title game or bust, and for some it's title or bust in the Big Twelve. From your evaluation as someone who is paid very close attention to Texas for a long time. Do you think that's a fair evaluation of this program of this is the first time in a very long time that we should have realistic expectations for this Texas team? Or does this feel kind of like more of the same? No, this feels different. Uh, I'll tell you this. When Steve Sarkeesian got there his first season, uh, during training camp, I went to an open practice uh, to go see them. They, they usually host one every fall. Uh, in the middle of August. 
and uh, Texas A&M does it as well. Um, a lot of programs do, but I, I went, I remember thinking I went the week before Texas had theirs, A&M had theirs. And I went over there. This was obviously coming off A&M's uh, 2020 college football playoff flirtation. Uh, and I remember looking at the roster and, it, you know, A&M's roster at that point looked pretty good. It was, they, they recruited a lot of talent there, especially up front. They're at SEC, you know, they were a good SEC team uh, in 2020. So that 2021 roster, even though they went eight and four, was still looked like physically get off the bus, looks really good. I remember going over to hey, Texas practice the next week and looking, and I was like, this team doesn't in Austin does not look anything like that team in College Station. Like physically, the lines of scrimmage, uh there were not a ton of guys on that roster that I would have thought would have started at AM. And then I go over there this spring. I went over there a couple times and, of course, went over for the spring game. And I look at that roster now, and, buddy, it looks a lot closer to what an SEC team should uh, than it has than it did when Steve Sarkeesian first got there. That's not to say that it's they're ready to go into the SEC and win it or anything when they get in there in 24, but they are certainly building it that way. When you look at how many linemen they have recruited in these last two classes and – Oh, by the way, those linemen are playing pretty quickly. They're contributing right away. Uh, Kelvin Banks, you know, freshman All-American, Cole Hudson, you know, I think all all Big 12 freshman team. It was the these are guys who are legit guys, and then they're also deepening the talent pool across the board. The skill talent is getting better. Even last year, I thought they were really thin at receiver, but I go see them this year. You add Adonai Mitchell. Uh, you add uh, a freshman in Jonte Cook, who, who that kid's going to be really good. Uh, DeAndre Moore as a freshman, I think, will be pretty good. Uh, Isaiah Nair, he's not fully healthy yet, but but when he's back, uh, you know, he he has some potential. So now all of a sudden you've got a receiver room that's pretty deep. Uh, defensively, I think you getting Jalen Ford back was really huge for them. Uh, they, they've got a, They've added some guys in the portal strategically that I think will help them on defense, but also there, I think, the depth overall, and Steve Sarkisian said it himself, he feels like this team, for the first time, is probably too deep at every position, maybe three deep at some. And I can't argue with him at, with, at all. I look at this team, and if they do not get to the Big 12 championship game, I would find it to be a disappointment, I especially considering how wide open the Big 12 is. I think the Big 12 is wide open this year, and for that reason – I think if you don't make it to the Big 12 championship in your last year in the conference with this roster and everything, the direction it's going under Sark, I think it's a massive disappointment. Yeah, and and for fans of other schools listening here, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that's fair. That, that's fine. Uh, I am, I have been with a I'll believe it when I see it with Texas. And there's still a little bit of that. But I think it's fine to say, like, like I still need to see something from this team. But I would remind everybody like how close Texas was to the Big 12 title game last year. Kansas State had to beat Kansas in the final to get to the Big 12 title game because had they lost that game, Texas was going. And Texas was how close to beating TC. Like Texas was, and, and that's on a Texas team that like Quinn Ewers wasn't awesome. Like I'm listening to podcasts at one point of the season and Quinn Ewers is the best quarterback in college football, Tom Fernelli. And was like, yeah, I don't uh, okay, Sh- sure. Uh, I think you're giving him too much credit for what he did for a part of a game against Alabama, but whatever, whatever. Like, I don't think he was great down the stretch, like at mm-hmm. all. Uh, I think there were some decisions uh, from a coaching standpoint that were questionable. Um, I don't still don't understand the strategy in the second Giving half. Giving Bijan Robinson 12, 12 carries against TCU, maybe? 
<laughs> uh, the entire second half game plan against Oklahoma State in Stillwater yes. was weird as could be. Um, yeah. <laughs> as an OSU fan, I was like, cool, thanks, great. Um, I'm not sure what you're doing here, but all right, guys. Yeah, have Quinn Ewers throw up 40-something times because every time that happens, it doesn't work. Anywho, you look at the schedule for them this year. Uh, they've got to go to Alabama in week two. That's a non-com. From a conference schedule standpoint, like I feel like they gave they did Texas some favors. Like you have a road game at Iowa State late. We don't know what that's going to be like. But outside of that, that's the only Alabama and Iowa State are the only games they will play outside of the state of Texas next year. So the schedule sets up for them well. The talent and the depth, as you said, is there. And so I need to ask about Quinn Ewers because to me. All of that's great. I think the running backs will be fine. I don't think any of them are B. John Robinson, but I think from a depth perspective, the running back room is is solid. This season, to me, is all going to come down to, is Quinn Ewers going to take that next big step forward? Because if he does, then yeah, absolutely. Just pencil, just, just go ahead and write Texas in as your preseason number one of the Big 12, and expectations are they had better be there or this is a bad season. It's going to fall on his shoulders to me because I... I I have yet to see, I understand we saw some glimpses early in the year, but I have yet to see this Quinn Ewers that has been preordained and talked about ever since he committed to Ohio State you know, three years ago. Yeah, I it, it does fall on him. And I think one of the, if you're a Texas fan, I think one of the best signs that you saw, and not, not that you can take a lot away from a spring game, but the fact that the very first time he went downfield to Xavier Worthy was on target. They connected. 46 yard pass or whatever it was and then they did it again later and every time Quinn threw the ball downfield for the most part it was on target because that was one of the biggest things that they struggled with last year was deep downfield passing and, and Quinn and Xavier or Quinn and anybody connecting downfield and that's so integral to Steve Sarkeesian's offense because Steve when you saw what they did at Alabama in 2020 when they won the championship uh, how much of that was, you know, Devontae Smith and, and all those other receivers getting downfield. Steve is still a big believer in play action, drop back pass game, three level stretch, attack the defense downfield. Uh, obviously uses a lot of RPOs as well in, in that equation. If you can't, he dials up the shot plays like you guys have seen it. He does, a, especially in the first, second quarter, his op- Sark's opening scripts are really good. He has a really good knack for drawing up shot plays, but boy, they couldn't hit on very many of them last year. Quinn was and Texas was one of the worst in the country. I think they were in the bottom third. I think if I go back in our advanced stats and uh, true media, I think they were in the bottom third of the country in accuracy and passer rating for downfield passing of yard air balls of 20 or more air yards. That part got to get better so far it seems like it is just from the little early returns we get there from what sark has seen so far in spring and uh, having an improved receiver room help receiver room helps that because it's not all quinn it it is you you need more than xavier worthy to be able to 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 get open uh you know jordan whittington's going to be there another year and i think he's set for another really strong year and i think the ad mitchell transfer may be probably the most impactful for this team than any other because that's i think that's what's really going to unlock this offense and it's going to allow uh worthy some to get some defensive attention away from him and so now you're gonna have to worry about ad mitchell you're gonna have to worry about Xavier worthy jordan Whittington over the middle oh by the way jatavian sanders former five-star caught 53 balls last year at tight end he's there too 
So you look at all these weapons and all it's really Quinn's got to do. He doesn't have to be number one, you know, Uncle Rico throwing the ball over the clouds and all that. (laughs) He ain't got to do that. He's just got to get the ball to those guys because they have got a lot of talent in that room. Uh, It certainly would help if, if if obviously if he raises his level of play and, and gets that next level, but he doesn't have to be a Heisman winner this year. He just needs to be an all Big 12 caliber guy uh, or, or or in that conversation, just raise your level accuracy. And Quinn himself said, hey, he's taking it upon himself to to take this a little more seriously, eat a little bit better, just just be a little bit sharper in his decision making. I think he would probably admit he was probably a little nonchalant last year. And, and I know Sark loves that attitude about him and that demeanor because nothing really rocks the boat for that kid. But but sometimes you just got to get serious about it. And I think uh, some of the steps you've seen him take in the offseason, if all that can translate in the fall, then that's what unlocks this team to being able to be that Big 12 title team that we're talking. Uh, let me let me do the uh, the local news radio or sports radio for a minute. Uh, I don't know, guys. I think Quinn Ewers is definitely locked in because he shaved the mullet, and that is a sign of maturity <laughs> and progress. And if that's not going to – I mean, that's the kind of thing I want to see for my starting quarterback. No backwards hats, no mullets like that. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, you said it yourself. Like, it's it's title game birth or bust for Texas this year. What should expect? I mean, is is that it? Is that expectation? Like, my argument with Shahan Raja was like he thinks it's if Texas doesn't win the Big Twelve, it's a disappointing season. And my problem is, I understand the depth there. You never know what the season's going to unhold. You know, next thing you know, Quinn Ewers is injured and and yada yada. But like, what is in year three for Sark? Like, this is a successful season, and anything underneath it is is not. I think 10 wins in a big 12 title game birth is success. I understand people saying they need to win the conference. And, and certainly if you don't win it this year, when's the next time you're going to win a conference? Cause you're going to the sec. It's going to be a little bit harder with 16 teams and, and the level of teams that you're talking that you're entering at the, certainly at the top level, Alabama, Georgia, LSU uh, going into a conference of those teams. It makes it a lot harder to do it. So I understand those who have the urgency to do it this year, but let's, let's be real. They haven't, They've only been to the Big 12 championship game one time, I think, since uh, in the post-Mac Brown year. So should, I think you should be happy with that. If you get if, if you have a year like they did in 2018, 10 wins, get in the Big 12 title game, win a New Year's Six Bowl, is that not progress? That's pretty good progress, in my opinion. That's a pretty good year three. And then when you go into the SEC, maybe you don't have to necessarily win the conference because we'll be in the 12-team playoff era. So maybe if you're in the top echelon of that conference, you can put yourself in. And and that ultimately moving forward for this program in the 12-team playoff era and for a lot of other programs, that will be the measuring stick. If you're not Alabama, Georgia, Clemson, you know, contending for national championships, that next tier is are you regularly getting or regularly contending for a playoff berth? Uh, especially if you move into these conferences. But this year, yeah, should you expect right now, we sit here in April, is there any reason they shouldn't win the conference? Sure, but we also didn't know last year that TCU was going to be what TCU was. We didn't know what Kansas State was going to be what Kansas State was. We thought, I think we thought Kansas State would be pretty good. I don't know if we would have said we would be a Big 12 champion, but we don't know who that team is this year. What if Oklahoma bounces back? They did a a lot of really good work in the portal too. And they're in the second year of a staff, and they certainly were disappointing last year. But they still do have talent on that roster. So what if it is 
you know, Oklahoma gets back and kind of gets that swagger back, you know, then are you, are you going to be that, are you going to be, is going to be that much of a failure if it's a Texas OU big 12 and you lose to the Sooners? I mean, certainly you don't want to as, as your rival, but it's, it's not like it's a massive failure to me. Like I said, 10 wins, big 12 title game, birth, new year, six uh, bowl. That's a good season for me. If you're Texas and a really good marker for Steve Sarkeesian in your three. Texas-Oklahoma Big 12 title game is the nightmare scenario for the Big 12 <laughs> the year before Oklahoma-Texas will even like from a from a Big 12 perspective like that there's nothing there's nothing you could have worse than, than uh, that this year I and know Brent, go, okay. Brent Yormark is not rooting for that no <laughs> no one in the Big 12 offices is like yeah that's what we want to happen uh, look Texas OU fans like you get mad like it just is like duh like okay <laughs> uh, you're on your way out. Uh, Sam, you have been awesome. Uh, as always, I really appreciate all the time you've been able to give us today. Do me a favor, plug it all, man. Where can everybody check out all the incredible work you do covering college football? Theathletic.com slash college football. That's, uh, that's where all our stuff is. So that's where you find my stuff. If you want to follow me at Twitter, Escon junior, I'm not really tweeting as much these days, but I still do post some story links there. So, uh, that that's where you can find me. And, uh, also on the Andy Staple show and friends podcast feed, uh, we also have a YouTube channel now, so we're starting to post some videos there that are not just the podcast. So uh, I'll have one uh, later this week. I had one last week talking about Texas A&M and their roster situation. I'll have one this week talking about the Longhorns. So uh, check that out on the YouTube channel. Uh, but uh, every now and then I'll pop in on the podcast once in a while as well. Sam, appreciate it. You do great work. Can't have, wait to have you back on again, man. No problem. Thanks for having me. It was uh, by far the biggest upset win of the weekend uh, down in Stillwater with Iowa State knocking off the number three ranked Cowgirls. And uh, here to talk about that win, a very interesting relationship that's forming with West Virginia and, and a whole lot more, Iowa State softball head coach Jamie Pinkerton. Coach Pinkerton, welcome back to the show, sir. Thank you, Philip. Appreciate you having me on. It's always great to get on and talk softball and, and Big 12 and and uh, in the current events of uh, the season and everything going on with our sport. Absolutely. I mean, look, we've been trying to find a good opportunity to get you on, and I couldn't think of a better reason than going on the road, um, scaring the absolute daylights out of Oklahoma State for two games, and then finally sealing the deal in an 11-inning thriller on Sunday. Uh, and just being honest, like this has been a bit of a tough season for your program this year. But then you go down to Stillwater against one of the best teams in the country. And I mean, and let's be honest here. That was three games that Iowa State was in all three games, um, had a, a massive opportunity on Saturday that couldn't quite close. And then you get to Sunday, Oklahoma State. I mean, you give Oklahoma State everything you've got. And despite them throwing out all three starting pitchers, getting multiple innings out of Kelly Maxwell, Iowa State's able to come away with a 3-2 win in in a lot of extra innings. And, how how big was that win just for, from you guys' standpoint? How, how how what kind of impact does that have for you? Well, obviously, uh, as you said, this is um, I'm hoping it's an anomaly. Over if you look over since um, we arrived in 2018 and started uh, bringing in quality athletes to compete in the Big 12. Uh, to ha- I hope this is just a uh, you know a speed bump in the building of the program, but. You know, from a confidence standpoint and believing in yourselves, um, I think uh, it was huge. I mean, make no mistake, Oklahoma State's very good, and I think we played like we were capable, like we like we had in nineteen and and uh, you know twenty before COVID hit, the twenty one regional year we had, and then last year being a bubble team, 
Um, I, I think uh, this is the first time we've been below 500 uh, for this extended amount of time since the 2018 season. So I think it was more of us kind of lifting uh, a weights off our shoulder, going out, playing free, and uh, and doing that more than anything Oklahoma State did. I, I feel like they're a very good team, as you know, top top three um, was – Top three in the Kenny Gajewski's done such a great job there, and and uh, we we play pretty um, about as well as we can play all three games and had the lead in all three, and you know we we just caught some breaks on Sunday and and we turned played really good defense, um, which is um, we'll get to that and what's kind of been going on in the season with the team, but I think just the ability for us to go out play free. And uh, they looked like they were having fun on on the diamond again. Instead of worrying worrying about the result, um, you know, they took care took care of the little things. And you know, we always coaching staff this is coaching cliche. We always preach do the little things, and the results and the wins will take care of themselves. I I think this weekend was um, you know um, proof to to the team that you take care of the little things in all three facets. You're we're talented enough to win ball games. Yeah, I think I lost count on Sunday after about the 20th double play, it felt like, from the defense. I mean, you ended with one. Yeah. I, I, It seemed like you guys racked up at least three or four on Sunday. I mean, I really did lose count after I was like, All right, there's another one, there's another one, there's yeah. another one. I mean, it, well, it, it wasn't. And yeah. Yeah, it was, it was. it's fortunate on our part. Uh, you know, OSU hit some balls on the screws with runners on and you know, just as a runner, you always tell the runner, C-line drive through, C-line drive through. If we get a late start, we can play base to base. And, and uh, you know, they, they hit, they hit some, um, you know, some BBs at us and, and we were fortunate enough to fill them. And, and we made some nice plays on some hard ground balls because they do run well. They're very efficient in what they do. Um, they just had a case at the Adams and we made plays and, and uh, like I said, it, it just shows what we're capable of doing when when we can put all three facets together. An interesting story that's kind of risen out of this weekend is Iowa State softball team and West Virginia fans. Iowa State softball, West Virginia. West Virginia doesn't have softball. Iowa State doesn't have baseball. Iowa State softball team's at the baseball game cheering on West Virginia. West Virginia fans are cheering on Iowa State. There's there's some sort of strange camaraderie that is formed between these two fan bases. <laughs> I mean, what... What led what led essentially to to your team deciding we're going to go down and cheer for West Virginia, who was also playing Oklahoma State there in Stillwater on on Saturday night? Right. I mean, you know, I really don't know a lot about it. I I, I have a social media presence, but being the generation that I am, I I'm not deep in the weeds in it. But just listening to our women talk, uh, I guess uh, how it started was our own ISU Barstool account. Um, after basketball lost, had put out some type. You need to talk with Leah Nelson and some of our players. But I think what happened is, is they they put their hands. Um, they had a picture of a guy sitting on a bench after basketball, after both of our basketballs lost, and and said uh, there uh, since there's no baseball, um, uh, we'll basically see you in the fall. Um, I, I've seen the tweet, but I've slept since then. And then <laughs> Leah Nelson wrote, well, this is awkward. And then West Virginia Barstool account said, we don't have, and I'm paraphrasing, um, said, well, we don't have baseball. We'll, 
will uh, adopt you or support you. And then, and then it just kind of started taking off. And then this weekend, you know, we caught some flack from some OSU fans and, and um, I, I was at the game, but I didn't sit with the team. I, I, I was checking out the new stadium and watching, watching baseball and walking around different things, uh, looking at different things. Uh, usually I always feel my players have to listen and deal with me enough. So I was just letting them have a night off. And, and, and what happened is, is that um, these fans, one of our kids got on and said women, I should say they're not, they're women, not kids, um, got on and uh, said, um, can you help us out with tickets? And then their fans got on it. And then the next thing you know, uh, West Virginia provided us with the tickets. So we were sitting in their section. So, uh, and they, they acknowledged us, the, the women were yelling for them. And then, and then it just, it just kind of ballooned from there. And I haven't seen all of it, but they, they, uh, they got on the bus after we won and to kind of support the guys, they sang country roads and, and, um, and then that kind of blew up on their side, apparently, so um, anyways, what we've got is, is um, some ISU fans are starting to support West Virginia baseball and some I and West Virginia fans are, um, you know, saying that we're their team. So it, it's kind of a cool thing, some camaraderie. It wasn't meant to offend Oklahoma State fans. I'm a native Oklahoman and have great respect for Oklahoma and Oklahoma State. And uh, I, I think some fans not knowing the background, wondering what the heck is <laughs> Iowa State doing there, cheering on West Virginia in our stadium. There was no malicious intent. It was just uh, the women, you know, kind of having fun and on an evening off before we, we before we played on Sunday. And it's it's got a quite of a groundswell. And one of the women texted uh, me last night and said, "Hey, do you see that these they've got these reverse T-shirts?" Um, they have Iowa State softball with our emblem and blue and gold T-shirts, and then they've got um, West Virginia baseball with uh, cardinal and gold. And <laughs> it's on one of their websites, and I go, I don't know if that's licensed or not, but I go, <laughs> it's a free country, but it's it's just kind of it's kind of cool, and and you know, um, a lot of the parents of the baseball team are are tweeting on social media at our players and, and, um, you know, the, uh, the head coach at West Virginia, uh, coach Maisie, I think that's how you pronounce it, um, tweeted out thanking our players for coming and, and then just hearing about the tweets that I guess back home in West Virginia, they could hear the fans and they wanted some of the fans were wanting to know that didn't know this is going on. Uh, how many fans do we have there? And then, and then everybody started saying, well, it's Iowa state softball team. So once again, it wasn't malicious intent. It wasn't disrespectful, uh, meant to be disrespectful to Oklahoma state. Um, and, um, but uh, our women had a good time and their baseball teams running with it and our softball teams running with it. So we kind of got, we're kind of cheering and supporting each other. I, look, I love it, I, and, I, and I would understand from an OSU fan standpoint to some extent. Like, oh, absolutely! I don't, I don't know the backstory here, and then look, as an Oklahoma State fan, like I love this. I think it's yeah. great. 
Like you have the riot bowl in football, but now you have two programs who one doesn't have baseball, one doesn't have softball, who's decided to kind of come together and support each other. You've got the West Virginia athletic director, Ren Baker, tweeting about it. Quote, is there anything more intimidating than a cyclone mountaineer? Like I, I think this is fun. I haven't seen that. (laughs) I mean, now we got a, we got athletic director. Like I said, I don't have a big, I get on it and, and retweet things from, and, uh, look at things from recruits that follow us as us coaches do. I mean, that's just the world we're in today, but to, to deep dive it. And I think I, I, I followed last night, um, uh, coach Maisie. I hope that's how you pronounce it. Uh, yes. I've not personally met the gentleman, but, uh, uh, it, it was really cool. Our women thought it was great that he shot us, gave him a shout out. So, um, I guess I probably, uh, when I can get, uh, finished preparing for, uh, we have an off weekend in big 12 with, we have Colorado state in town. Maybe, maybe I'll dive into that and have a little bit of fun with it. I mean, I, I think you should, I think it's great. Um, I, I, I mean, honestly, it's, it's hilarious. It's awesome. I, I love seeing this very unique situation come about kind of organically. Yeah. I mean, you can't force these kinds of things yeah. and, to, and to see it, in the Big Twelve, like, and that's the big thing for me. It's like it's it's good to see um, two different fan bases inside the conference finding ways to support each other and Absolutely. kind of fill a need for their own fans. That's well, awesome. and then for the Oklahoma State fans that might have been on out at the game, wondering what there was no disrespect intended, <laughs> and um, you know uh, we we try to run a classy program, and uh, apparently the bad side of it is is there there's some there's some jabs being thrown and, and the intent was not because we lost Oklahoma state on Saturday, we were there cheering for Oklahoma state. This has been going on, on um, since March madness. I mean, if you've seen it, you realize how long it, it didn't happen just because we showed up at, at a baseball game. Like I said, I didn't sit with the woman. I, I was really uh, taking a really look at how that, um, uh, that stadium's put together very very nice facility i walked around um uh, you know the concourse and looked at their hitting facility and and looking at the setup that the corrals that they had in the outfield um, um i would i was treated with respect uh, uh when i was walking around so uh maybe there was just a a few fans that were upset and that are that are tweeting but uh walking around the stadium i had fans stop me and say, Hey, that was a great ball game today. Uh, it's been a great series so far. So I, I was, I was not met with any, any disrespect, but apparently um, a couple of things happened um, on the exit to the, to the bus that, um, that, you know, is unfortunate. As an OSU fan, I do apologize personally. Uh, no, no worries. Like, I, I hate, I hate to say that there's some in every fan base, but unfortunately, yeah. oh, I, uh, I, I believe you're absolutely true. Uh, that's absolutely true, and and I think for the most part it was a positive experience, and we, you know, uh, we try not to let a couple of fans um, to uh, ruin something that's uh, special between uh, our our women and West Virginia State's men uh, baseball team. It's it's been pretty cool. So I do want to talk about the season a little bit. Obviously, as you mentioned, this is this has been a, an an outlier, an unusually right. disappointing year. Um, Fourteen wins on the season. Uh, I, I, postseason is very much going to be a you're going to have to win the Big Twelve tournament if they're going to make it back to a regional. I mean, what has it been about this year? Because I think you have built a fantastic program and a great foundation there in Ames. So what has it been about this season that has kind of led down this particular path? Uh, I mean, I think it's, you know, when you get right down to it, it, it's a sport of failure, right? And 
first and foremost, um, appreciate the kind words. Um, but, you know, it, it's just been hard for us to string together games, um, you know, where all three facets are going. We've, um, you know, pitching has been uh, pretty, pretty good most of the year. And then we'll have a bad defensive game. And then, you know, we'll score a few runs and then, uh, you know, we'll make an error and let someone back in it. And the three facets hadn't really aligned. Um, and if you look at our schedule, it hasn't been real easy either. I mean, um, you know, we have three losses to number one, Oklahoma, three losses to number eight, Texas, two losses to number three, Oklahoma State, uh, two losses to number six, Arkansas at the time. So, you know, yes, uh, that's not an excuse. Uh, you got to if you're going to be amongst the, the elite, which is where we're trying to take this program, you know, where we're pretend, uh, perennial um, bubble team and better getting into postseason, which we have been um, up until this year, 18 and this year, um, you know, you got to play that type of schedule. I think I was looking at the RPI. I think we have the 35th toughest schedule in the country. So everything was aligned to do well, but, uh, you know, we just haven't come through. And, you know, you win as a team and you lose as a team, but it's just been kind of an anomaly that, uh, you know, we have pitching, we don't have defense. We have hitting, the pitch, pitching has a bad day. And, and anyone that knows baseball or softball realizes that you got to, to have really have a chance, you got to have two of the three, right, uh, to have a chance. So with that being said, I, I think our pitching staff has been um, pretty solid most of the year, um, but we get in trouble when um, – when you know you give free passes, uh, you know a walk. Uh, it always seems like eighty to ninety percent of the time they score. I don't think the percentage is that high, but it, it always seems to happen. And our problem is, is we've let big innings roll up. If you look at any of the box scores, um, it might start organically as a walk with one out, and then maybe there's a bloop single or a hard hit single, and then there's an error, and then a home run, and, and we've had trouble uh, staying out of high leverage innings. And that doesn't bode well defensively. Offensively, uh, we are not doing anything different. I think it's just one of those years where, you know, you look at Major League Baseball, you look at softball, you you look at college baseball, you look at a four-year career of, of most players. You know, there's outliers, the All-Americans like Sammy Williams, like we had. Um, that don't really have bad years. But, you know, Michaela uh, Ramos is uh, driven in 50 runs a year the last two years. She has 17 this year. So, um, uh, you know, Carly Spellhog, a lifetime 3 310, 320 hitter for us, hitting around 220. Um, Angelina Allen, an all freshman, big, big 12. Um, player last year hit over 300 is hitting 180. Uh, Alicia Ranches, our shortstop, has always been around 272, 80, been a great fielder. She struggled at times defensively. She's hitting 190. So what what I'm trying to say without making excuses, it, it's just fact and truths. Um, we uh, you can have one player maybe have a down year, but you can't have four or five. And if you look at our stats. Uh, this is the first year. We used 20 players in the game yesterday. Uh, I didn't realize that until Brady wrote the story. And, you know, you look at, you know, splits and analytics are becoming big in softball. And and um, we we used uh, everybody, but I think two bench players. You have to keep one back in case you have an injury and, and, and a couple of our pitchers. 
So um, we used, I didn't realize that until Brady told me, he goes, you realize you used 20 players yesterday. And, and we, what, for the future, when we come out of this and we've shown, you know, we, we beat a very good South Dakota state team last week. That's a top 50. Then we, we we're in all three of these and, you know, like you said, yeah, it's probably going to take the big 12 tournament, but if you can run the table, we can still be above 500, but we got a lot of work to do. We got a good SEMO team coming in. That's um, like 15, 16, one in our conference, Colorado state is a good RPI team in the mountain West. And then, you know, we have Iowa and then Baylor and Kansas. So um, uh, if we can run the table, I think our RPI will take care of itself, but you're right. We're probably looking at having to get hot in the tournament, and that that's a that's a that's a tall order when you when you know the road's going to go through Texas, Oklahoma, well Baylor's ranked, so it's going to go through everybody in the Big Twelve. But you got to get through uh, Texas, Oklahoma State, know you at some point in time. So uh, we know we know our. Um, that we've got to, we got to be near perfect from here on out. And that's, that's a, that's a hole that we're in. You know, we, we, you mentioned, of course, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, Texas, Baylor, all ranked. Um, I think Texas Tech is having a, a resurgent year in year one for Craig Snyder. I think um, Kansas is having probably their best year under coach McFalls. It, I was reading D1 softball and, and the kind of their recap of the weekend. And they made a point I agree with. I think this is the best year in the big 12 that we've seen in quite some time. Um, just from top to bottom. Yeah. I and mean, how much harder does that make it for you guys in a year where it does seem like you're dealing with the number of struggles and issues that you are? Uh, well, I mean, that's softball, that's stuff that we've got to overcome. You know, I've got I've got to become a better coach and and help our players navigate. That's the point that I was going to get to. And and those we got to find out how can we build their confidence? How can, how can we find, you know, what other teams are, I mean, uh, what have they found? that that they are attacking and we know what it is is we we just got to be able to make the adjustments and help our players make the adjustments so you know at the end of the day that all falls on on me and um and you know we're doing everything but i think the main thing is is i think what we saw with the win against south dakota state we lost game one had the winning run um uh, you know we uh, tried to suicide to tie it and get the winning run to third and the suicide didn't work out and we lost four, three, and then we came back and won eight, one second game and played really well. So I feel like we've kind of slowly in the second half have made that climb up and we just got to continue. We just got to continue making that climb, get being more confident uh, and knowing that, that, that our players and, um, us or uh, the coaching staff has them prepared and uh, they've done the work but I think this weekend that belief's key and I think that's uh, what's coming back to them right now yeah absolutely I mean at a certain point you know it becomes a mental issue to some well, extent and then right like, like you said back to the big 12 you know I I thought um, being on the committee in the past I mean there could be arguments made that it was the first time in 17 years that the fourth place team didn't make it and Iowa State was fourth. And, you know, I could make the argument being on the committee, yeah, we didn't have enough top 50 wins. We had some quadrant floor losses. Well, if you look this year, uh, uh, as of as of the last time I checked deep into the quadrants, I, I don't know if we have any quadrant floor losses. Um, we might, I mean, depending on how the conferences are starting to pull other people down, but, um, you know, um, it was, it's, was just a year last year that, 
um, that we only got three and, you know, obviously I'm biased should have been four. And after seeing how the big 12 performed, I, I think we, we could have done, uh, I think we could have done well too, but that, that's, uh, you know, that's crying over spilt milk and, and everything and, and moving on, but getting back to the conference, I think you're exactly right. O, OU, um, OSU, and Texas um, have been playing very good softball. Baylor, like you said, has had a resurgent. Coach Moore just does a great, fantastic job down there. Knowing uh, Craig Snyder, I knew that the talent was there, and uh, and knowing uh, you know his his philosophy and everything, I knew that that was coming. I don't know if anyone could have predicted the, that turnaround that quickly, but. Um, but also too, you know, uh, they've got to go through the grind of the Big Twelve like everybody else does, and and uh, but I I think they're doing fantastic, and like you said, um, Jen McFalls and in, in Kansas has done a a good job this year too. So I think top to bottom, um, you know, even though we're the one below five hundred right now, I would take our team and match them against anybody right now, and and um, and and know that we can compete with anybody in the country. It does seem like Iowa State's on the upslide, which is uh, probably not the best thing for uh, Kansas and Baylor who you still have on the <laughs> schedule toward the end of the year. Uh, the Big 12 does seem like it's on the way up. Obviously, it's going to be going through a lot of changes in the next few years. Next year, uh, three of the four incoming teams bring in softball, BYU, Houston, and UCF. Uh, and then, of course, after a year of 10 programs, which will be fun, uh, we're going to go back to we're gonna get to eight when Oklahoma and Texas leave. I'm curious your thoughts on on the three softball programs incoming and, and how you feel like they might impact the Big 12 moving forward. I I think it, we're still going to be a competitive conference. Um, uh, you know, uh, losing OU and Texas from an RPI standpoint. You know, we're here with those with those two schools. Um, uh, being in the conference, we've been two or three in the RPI. I think last year was an anomaly. We fell to four uh, in the R conference RPI. But, uh, you know, they, they will be missed, no doubt. But, uh, you know, BYU, uh, when we played out there last year, I looked in amazement at their wall. I think they had only missed um, – they missed last year, but uh, in like 20 years they'd only missed one NCAA regional. Uh, so um, – you know, I, I feel like that they're bringing in the tradition um, that that can help the conference. They're having a decent year. They're fighting weather like we have. Um, they were supposed to come to Ames this year, but weather didn't allow it. You know, UCF and what um, Coach Ball Malone's done down there, um, uh, you know, making a super regional last year, uh, That that's going to be um, great for the conference. And uh, with Houston coming in, um, uh, you know, Coach Vesely's done a, a good job, and Houston traditionally is a very good softball team. So uh, I think um, next year with the ten teams, it's it's going to be really competitive. So uh, that I, I'm looking forward to it. it it's going to be awesome, and and uh, you know, so uh, but when when we have those other teams, I think um, I, I think you know, obviously you're going to lose some, but. Um, you get um, get some three very good teams coming in, and and I think I think we'll be fine. I'm interested to see how it impacts the Big Twelve. I mean, look, there's certain conferences that get the benefit of the doubt when it comes time for postseason selection, and I think part of the problem for the Big Twelve, and I think this has been an issue in some in a variety of sports, is having fewer teams has uh, has, has had a, a harder impact, especially when you have an Oklahoma team like Oklahoma, who look, it's just. 
right? It's, it's hard to get wins against Oklahoma. Like they've lost one game this year. So yeah. uh, it, that makes it tougher uh, on everybody. And so I'm, I'm curious, like I'm very interested in how this Big 12 is going to look, especially after Oklahoma and Texas leave. Right. And look, I never want, and I understand the, the, the coach speak of like, you want the best competition. You don't want to see a, a good program leave. Right. But I'm really curious what the impact of not having to play Oklahoma and, and look, from a from an OSU fan standpoint, from any standpoint, having to be right. like, okay, well, that might just be three losses on the schedule. How that impacts the Big 12 top to bottom moving forward. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the, you know, um, I think um, from an RPI standpoint, it, it, it's, you know, it's going to hurt. I mean, those two teams, I think Oklahoma's number one right now, Texas is in the top 10. You know, Oklahoma State sitting at three. I, I glanced at it this morning because um, I knew I tried to prepare uh, after getting in at 3 a.m. I, I knew that I had this interview and I knew that later in the week wasn't going to be good for for yourself or even me. But I just think uh, that's uh, but the flip side of that, look at how many teams got in from the Big Ten and the ACC last year so when you start when you have a bigger conference and this is where it would be key if cincinnati west virginia tcu k-state if they would all add if you look at the big 10 12 and 14 teams right now are over 500 and last year they got six or seven teams and that's when you're playing each other and then when you go out and play schedule and win games, it you know, uh, a rising tide rises all boats, and and um, you know I can sit and and argue all all day long that that the Big Twelve is, uh, but then you're going to have people going but but but, and and it comes down to you know you don't have the numbers. We're playing too many. We can't control who are in some of these conference. And some of these tournaments, you know, like um, this year we've played a couple of teams that have only won that have won less than five games, and and we didn't control that, but we take the hit. And I think when you have when you're only playing four tournaments compared to six or seven, uh, you can control who you play a little bit more. And I I can do a better job of that too. I think I overdid it this year, um, so I went from one way of being on the bubble and the bubble burst and say, okay, I've got to tweak this schedule and then added some games. And then um, in some of these tournaments um, turned out to have a lot tougher teams in them. So um, it'll, it'll be interesting if um, the big 10 and everything, they can, it's a lot easier to control who you play a lot more in four weeks than it is seven. Cause you're looking at uh, 15 games that outside of the host, you don't know who you're playing when you enter the tournament until later on sometimes you know sometimes you don't so uh, that can affect rpi too so it, it's an interesting dynamic and and you know wonder if uh, softball will softball and baseball go the way of um, basketball and go into kind of the net stuff i don't know how you do it in softball i don't and i don't like the margin of victory uh, there's no reason to go out and beat somebody 20 to 1 um, but I, I don't know, uh, you know, if there's some tweaking that needs to be done to, to the RPI. Yeah, I definitely think there's a lot of people around college softball who don't care for the RPI. Um, I've, I've had some conversations about the quad system, and I, I'd like to nitpick it a little bit. Yeah. We had Coach Gaeski on last week, and, and I, I want to ask you a question that he answered, which is, I mean, if there is one thing about maybe the postseason or the RPI ranking system that you would want to change, what, what would that be? 
Wow. Uh, that That's a good question. I think uh, when, when I was on the committee, this is my second year off, um, you know, the home win and the, you know, uh, one thing that we have a lot that the net doesn't account for is, is uh, we all play uh, an unbalanced number. Uh, and I think probably basketball does also, but probably not to the extent that we do. We all play an unbalanced number of home and road games. What's the fine line? I mean, and, 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 uh, you know, right now we've played eight home games. So, you know, what's the balance? Cause we go on the road. We all know it's hard to win on the road. So what's the balance there when you got teams like, Hey, if I was, if I was Arizona, Arizona state, Florida, international, Florida Atlantic, I'd play 40. I'd only go on the road when I had to play conference games, maybe one tournament. Um, I don't know where the, and, and that's where as a committee, we had those discussions of, um, can we really weigh home and away because then it makes it even more unbalanced, um, and, and in a good way or a bad way, you know, if you're a good road team and say like in, uh, say like when we, I think our first, first 36 games were on the road, um, you know, some of those were neutral, but, if you go out there and you win all of those and that throws you up and that gives the formula, I don't know. Um, I'm kind of losing my, not my train of thought, but how I want to explain it is, is how, how can you make that balance and make it, make it fair for everybody? Um, because then if you talk about winning, I don't know what the point system is. Should road wins be rewarded more than home, home wins? I think a win's a win. And then it depends on the opponent but uh, say say that um, you know we we have a forty and forty and twenty record, forty and thirty five and twenty five record, whatever whatever you want to call it, and most of our games on the road where we get substantially rewarded for winning road games. Uh, I don't I don't know. Uh, interesting what, what I mean. That's the talk when I was on the committee. Well, road wins should account for something home wins should account for something but when when they ran the when they ran the analytics on that it really made not much of that much of a difference uh so uh, that's why softball hasn't gone with it yet but i mean i'm sure that maybe some of those talks have gone on a little bit more since i've left the committee and i, I definitely think it would be i'd be interested i haven't i haven't talked to kenny about it i'd be interested to know what his his thoughts were on it uh, his primary was he wants to reseed uh, once you get to Oklahoma City, uh, as opposed to like reseed one through eight, as opposed to just if congrats on upsetting the one seed, you're now the one yeah. seed. Well, in case in point too, um, what was the region last year that had uh, uh, that Wichita State got sent to Oklahoma, right? So yeah. if you at least I think knowing from being in the room. Uh, and it's difficult because of all the different sites that you play at in, in basketball, you know, you go and play one game at one site and, and you have a smaller, a smaller um, sample size in basketball. We're playing 56 or whether they playing 27 plus postseason or conference tournament. Uh, same with us, 56, if you make it to that. Um, I'd like them to see the top 32 and and there's been talk of that but then you start getting into um basketball has smaller roster sizes so you're 
you're hauling 15 players instead of 22 to 25. So I can understand the cost level too of, uh, and I mean, it's, it's way above my pay grade, but I think <laughs> if you, if you do 32, then, then you're able to spread those, those teams, those one and two seeds out a little bit better than having, and in, in, in that situation last year with Wichita state, I mean, there was a lot of talk about it, but that's not the first time that's happened. Clemson got what sent to Alabama or sent to Georgia no, Alabama Duke got sent to Georgia, but that was a COVID thing. I was on the committee um, when we had to predetermine the sites. Duke was on the outside looking in, and then they got hot. But I mean, but the, to have Clemson go to Alabama, I believe last year, I think that's where you got to look at the one through thirty-two, and that's a great idea to reseed it when you get to the World Series. But I think that going to thirty-two could probably cut down on some of that. Uh, going into the series too, but I'd I'd love to uh, sit down and have a talk with Kenny about that. That that that's interesting. Uh, well, I'm, you know, I'm sure you might have an opportunity in Oklahoma City when the Big Twelve champion or Big Twelve tournament is held. Uh, Coach Pinkerton, I really do appreciate your time today. You have absolutely been fantastic. Um, I feel like I rambled you. on a lot. No, no, but it's it's good. Like I I enjoyed it. I'm especially you were on the committee, so it's really interesting to learn yeah. kind of how the committee works more and more. I mean, this season I really learned. Having different interviews, it's it's good to understand the postseason softball even better and kind of how it's determined because you can't fix something if you don't understand like what the forms right. are and it is it is a complicated conversation. I well, think. and I'll assure you, Philip, in that room, you're not just pulling names out of a hat and pulling. Um, uh, my second year there, I joined. They had already seeded the sixteen teams, I believe, before we were finished playing in the big 12 tournament, I get on the bus and we had a bus with Wi-Fi. I get on the bus. I think we played at noon and was done at two and they had already started at eight that morning. And I got on the bus at two and I was on a video thing like this on the bus uh, with a few breaks from the time we left Oklahoma city until we got about uh, 10 miles north of Des Moines, 20 miles from home. So that was eight hours straight that we were on. So there, I think um, sometimes there's a misconception that, um, that it, that it's not well thought out. I, I learned a lot. Is it, would I want to do it again? I would do it if I was asked. I don't think it's something I would volunteer for because uh, <laughs> um, I got a lot of, a lot of hate emails and a lot of, uh, voicemails and not from coaches, but from fans and that, um, that there's a lot more um, that's thought out um, and the formulas that they use on the travel, um, you know, to go, you know, um, you, you can't, but you can't bus over so many miles. I think it's 250 or 500 or whatever. I've been off now. I forgot the number, but that plays into how the regions are set up. So there's there's a lot more it goes into that the general public doesn't know. They do it, it's a fantastic job that they do, even though there's a lot of a lot of disagreements. But uh, the the best for the sport I do know is uh, we we tried to do what was best for the sport and what was best for everybody that we could. I would love a, a mock uh, selection committee similar to what we've seen from college football. That would be a uh, very interesting to have the opportunity to actually participate in something like that and see how it's done. Cause I think a lot of times once you get in there and have to do it yourself, it is a whole heck of a lot harder than anyone actually realizes. Right. So 
And and with is uh, just look at the top twenty five this week with the um, with the teams losing games and you know upsets and things of that nature. It's only going to get more difficult as um, as some of the mid majors and and programs start rising and more parity comes in. It's only going to get more difficult. So and that means our sport's healthy. That's great. I love to hear it. Coach, again, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time and, and all of your thoughts today. Uh, good luck to your team this weekend and through the rest of the season, sir. Right. Thank you, Philip. I appreciate you having me. Podcast Network.